at the end of the day, we're wrong a lot. So that implies sort of a negative part, but there's a positive part of it, which is you are often actually greatly surprised by what a medicine can do. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. So you've made it. You've made it to the final episode of our first season of Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. We have journeyed. We have journeyed through the basic biology that have led to understandings of disease as varied as Alzheimer's, pain, cancer, and the immune system. We've heard the stories of how scientists become passionate about what they do and their courage to tackle unknown territories and recognize when different scientific worlds collide. So, to end this series and to wrap it all up, we turn to the proof in the pudding, testing the things we discover in the lab, in patients and clinical trials. So, how do these clinical trials work? Who gets involved? How are they monitored? And finally, how many good ideas actually make it through for use in patients? So what percentage of basic research projects do you think get out of the lab and make it into patients in clinical trials? What percent actually make it? I'm not sure. Um, for the small molecules, um, I would say about 30%. For the large molecules, about 50%. It's definitely a very small percentage in the realm of 10%. Research to in humans, say 10%. Um, I would probably say maybe 5 to 10%. 20 or less. 5%. Single digits, it's got to be like 5% maybe. 5%. That was my answer before I got into this business, coming straight out of academia. You think you've got an idea, and you just make the drug and put it in patients and test it. What that entails, the steps the from the good idea, which will be the last line in a paper you write academically, this will cure cancer, or this will cure asthma, or this may help treat patients with Alzheimer's disease. I was surprised about the number of steps that are still required to both get a drug into patients and then test it through clinical trial until it gets approval for use in the wider community. So like possibly many of you out there, I'd heard about clinical development phases, phase one, two, and three. But to be honest, I didn't really know a lot about what they entailed and the amount of work and understanding that went into each one of these phases. So phase three, there's a lot of excitement around phase three trials because these are the trials that provide the statistical numbers and insights into efficacy that a government agency needs to approve a drug. Very critical, very important. But what's equally as important and critical is the phase one and two. These are the studies that then help us understand the dosing, the safety, and hopefully to get an early sniff of efficacy. And there's lots of moving parts there, and it's a very iterative process as well. So help to provide clarity on this, I'm sitting with an expert in the field, Medad Passe, a senior clinician running multiple trials in early clinical development. Welcome, Medad. Hi. 
And so I met him. What does it take? <laughs> In 30 seconds or less. In 30 right? seconds or less. No, really, it's a huge yeah. operation. Yeah, it's funny you, you, get, you gave that vignette because I, I had kind of a similar experience, right? I was a fellow, and it was during my fellowship when I started doing some clinical trials work as an investigator that um, I really got sort of excited about the whole idea, like you did, about, um, about moving the science work into patients. And like you, when I came into industry, I, I realized how naive I had been, how, how much I didn't understand about, about what it takes to do all the work. It's like, you know, doing an experiment and running a gel, except on a much vaster scale with people. So it's, you know, there, it changes the equation a lot, right? If you mess up a gel, that's one thing. You almost are nervous about saying the word experiment because you're, these are people, these are people in their lives. And so you have to have a different level of care about what's going on. You know, we're trained first, do no harm. So you have and to start And to your from point, there. when you get out into clinical trials, you get one chance to do the best, the perfect one experiment to see if patients are going to benefit. Right. I think it's less than 0.1% or something of, yeah. an, of an idea coming out of research even getting into the phase one stage. So taking the best experiment forward into patients becomes critical. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The, the, the funnel is pretty narrow as you start to filter at each stage, you filter more and more molecules out. Um, but we learn a lot. I mean, I think that's the flip side, right? It's, it's, as with any, even if you're running an experiment in the lab, you learn a lot from each of those um, uh, experiences. And I think that's really a, um, a powerful part of uh, all of these uh, things. I just want to uh, just kind of probe a little bit around that yeah. because the outcomes for a trial, who, who decides those? Is this something that you and your team work on and say, we want to see uh, this much change in an asthmatic response or a tumor size regressing yeah. by a certain amount or a patient surviving longer? Whatever the case is, and then yeah, that's a great that question. Work? So yeah, there's a lot of time that goes into thinking about what, how much effect is enough effect, right? So what are you looking for, and how how good is good enough to keep going? Um, and it's, I would say, it's a combination of things. Where do we need to be, and how far do we need to get compared to what's already out there for patients? Um, and we rely on our experience, on the experience of the other um, people around the industry who've done experiments. And, and presumably so, input from patient advocacy groups yeah, as well. Yes, so patients and, and their advocacy groups, yeah, absolutely. We try hard to get that feedback from patients to ask, what can we do to treat your disease better? And then we can bring that back and try to address that need for patients. Can you talk a little bit about the time of this? You know, I yeah. often get the question, I'm like, yeah, I've got this Why great idea so and I'm gonna make a drug yeah. and I'm gonna put, and people, you know, friends, yeah. colleagues are like, great, when will the drug be on the market? And you're like, whoa, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's many years in between. It's many years, yeah. I, I think, you know, the, it, it can range. In general, you're looking at eight, nine, 10, sometimes 11 years to, to go from first in human to your first approval, um, depending on the indication and, and the size. You're talking about thousands of patients. In some indications, you have to treat them for not just you know, a few months, but often a year or many years uh, to demonstrate both the, the benefit as well as the risk. So if you think, for example, in Alzheimer's disease is a good example of one where um, we look for the benefit to those patients is sort of uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease have a gradual decline in their, in their uh, 
capacity, right? Their, their dementia, gradual decline in their uh, worsening of their dementia. And most of the medicines now try to prevent that decline. That decline happens slowly over many years, and showing a prevention of that decline then requires you to study these patients for many years. So you can see this difference. Between... Yeah, so you can see the difference between the active therapy and showing the benefit and the risk. Jane. Hi, Wellington. Wellington is my producer. How complex is it to follow a patient for so many years? Well, the simple answer is very. For certain diseases, the disease takes a very long time to progress. And so you have to keep patients on drug for a long time, or you need to monitor them for a long time to see if their disease changes. And so say for a cancer, when you're looking for tumor shrinkage, you're hoping to see that within weeks or months. But in the case of Alzheimer's, where you're looking at, at a disease that slowly progresses, you need to monitor these patients for a long time. And so the way you handle the clinical operations around these different scenarios requires a lot of coordination. And so some, some development programs can take a lot longer and require a lot more patients, and others, to your point, um, can be smaller and, and involve smaller patients. But you're really looking at sort of that eight to 10-year time frame um, easily sort of for most, pro most programs to get to approval. Is there a push to try and you know, still do the right clinical experiment and do what's right for patients, but try and make the decision points a lot smarter and quicker. Certainly, I think there's been a lot of push to try to move more, um, more efficiently. If you think about the clinical trials that we do, um, there's always a trade-off between um, uh, going fast, meaning you going to a lot of different investigators around the world, it's balanced by making sure that you're taking care of your patients and, and doing the right thing for patients along the way. But again, I think they're, they're uh, depending on the disease you're in, you can't compress time. So people with, with bad rheumatoid arthritis, their joints would, will deteriorate over time. You can't study that any faster than the time it takes for those joints to deteriorate, which is usually at least a year, if not a little bit longer. And you have to be able to show that difference over that time. And so um, there's some things you can be more efficient on and go faster on, some things that are harder to do. One of the big things I think that are leverage points for us in terms of going faster, I think, is identifying patients who are most likely to respond. And you may be able to go a little bit more quickly. I wanted to back up a bit and yeah. talk about your personal journey into medicine and translational medicine. I know, I know for me, um, one of the pivotal points was during my graduation when I was you know, an immunologist studying the immune system and working in Africa on cohorts of patients that had helminth infections. And we were trying to understand basic immune responses underlying the chronic infections. You, I believe, began doing science, microbiology, yeah, out in the oceans, right? Oh, you yeah. <laughs> I believe yeah. you used to play with sharks. <laughs> I, yeah, and I don't I, mean in a corporate sense. <laughs> no, well, yeah. It did give me some lessons, though, life lessons from that. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a great experience. I was a college student working in a, in a microbiology lab. And, you know, it was a summer job, really. And um, uh, this lab worked on uh, shark microbiology. And so um, uh, they were having uh, challenges, sort of, you, you didn't know when a shark died in the, in, or got sick in the National Aquarium, is it sick? Because you need to know what's normal for those sharks to know whether it, it's abnormal when they're sick. And so what they would do is go down to um, the Bahamas and um, 
try to figure out what was normal, what was a normal bacteria um, in sharks in the wild. And one year they were going down and um, uh, there were two people who were supposed to go and one of the people couldn't go at the last minute and no one else could go. And they asked me if I wanted to go and I said, sure, this sounds great. And so, yeah, we spent two weeks um, off the coast of the Bahamas on a boat um, out catching sharks. And the Bahamas part for a student sounds great. The it shark was, part sounds a little scary. The whole thing was amazing. No, and you know, yeah, it was, uh, you know, they, <laughs> so that we would, we would bait hooks and come back and uh, on the hooks would be a shark swimming around. And you would pull the line up to the side of the boat. We were in these, you know, Boston Whaler uh, boats, n n you know, nothing fancy. And um, there were two or three of us in the boat and the person in the front would have the front of the shark and somebody in the back would grab the tail and we'd bring the shark into the boat and I was the person in the front of the boat usually. And we'd put a towel over the shark's head and then they would draw the, the, the actual scientists. I was a college student, you know, so I'd say that the people who actually knew you what the they were doing. You were the one with the towel, right? <laughs> I was the one with the towel. So the people in the back were, you know, they were drawing blood and they would tag the animal and, and doing all that sort of stuff. And then it was time to release the shark and we had to take the hook out of the shark's mouth and then, and then throw the throw the shark back in the water. And just for the audience out there, I, I still see all 10 digits, yes. all fingers <laughs> yeah. still. <laughs> yeah, and it was a great, you know, I, I don't want to overstate what I did there. It was, a, it was an amazing experience though, to your point. It was one of those sort of, sort of uh, um, really defining moments. I, I already knew I was really a, a scientist by that point. I, I sort of committed to, to microbiology and biochemistry at that point. And, and uh, I ended up then getting into molecular biology. I think then the other, Really one, I mean, for me, really the, the, the really transformative time for me was in, during my fellowship when I started doing clinical trials. I'd always loved doing the scientific part and I found myself, you know, doing a bunch of these trials, early stage trials in the ICU. I was a critical pulmonary and critical care fellow and I just, I got the bug there. That, that's sort of when I thought, this, this is it. This is sort of that marriage of science and medicine for me that, that really is fun. And what I realized, I didn't want to be the investigator. I wanted to be the one who could help design the studies and um, see the, get the breadth of the science. You know, As an investigator, you get a lot of different trials, but you, you really are sort of, I call it the effector arm of the clinical trial, right? You, you, um, you're given the protocol, you, you can influence it, um, uh, and clearly the people who have been doing it for a long time were able to influence it and have a big impact on it. But I just really wanted to be the one who was working with those people and helping to design those studies and, and work a molecule through all the way, you know, be, be involved in the whole thing. Are you an expert across all these different diseases that you've mentioned? I, you know, I, I think I, I wouldn't call myself an expert in everything. I think I certainly have areas where I have more experience I, you know, I, I spent most of my career in pulmonary diseases and have done that. And over the past sort of 10 years or so, I've sort of been able to uh, do a lot, a lot of different things. Um, you know, everything from oncology to neurology and, you know, everything in between. And that's been really great. But I, I think um, the, the term expert is not one I would apply to myself in that role. And, and that's okay in my mind, because I think Drug development, one of the key things you learn when you get into drug development is it's a team sport. This is, this is a place where um, in everything from the science, the basic science, to 
how you conduct the trial, the clinical operations part of it, to um, understanding the disease and dealing with the investigators and the patients. There are people who are experts in each of those areas. And I think the great, you know, privilege for me, the joy, what, what I enjoy is working with those people. So um, I, I've always been a generalist. Um, for, for my medical colleagues, I sort of liken it to critical care. I'm the I'm responsible for the patient in the ICU. Everybody comes in to see that, you know, that patient. If I run into a problem that I don't understand how to do, I'll call the specialist. I'll call the nephrologist or I'll call the neurologist or whoever that is to come and give a consult and help me decide what to do with the patient. And I, I view my current role very much in that same way, that I really have this phenomenal team of people around who are the experts and help, help guide me. So Jane, in an ICU hospital situation, time obviously is of the essence. Is he applying that same intensity? And are there commonalities to all of these trials? Well, we're always trying to move things along quickly. Perhaps not quite as quickly as a, a situation in an ICU that requires response within minutes or hours. But clearly, what is, what is key for us in, in clinical trial, and I think Medad is pointing to this, is that we have the right group of specialists available that are constantly assessing the data, monitoring the patients, and moving the project along so that we get a clinical outcome as quickly as possible. We've talked about that going from an idea to actually getting something approved can take a very long time. Why the roadblock? Why are we doing clinical trials? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, and I think certainly there are times where, where I think we all feel, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go. We know this is gonna work. Um, and, and I would say I think our, our industry perspective, our clinical perspective, and I think my personal experience is that at the end of the day, we're wrong a lot. Uh, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I think that's, that's the, the idea that we know and understand biology to the extent that we, um, we could skip on that understanding in patients. Um, we, we've just been wrong so often. So that implies sort of a negative part, but there's a positive part of it, which is you are often actually greatly surprised by what a, mo uh, a medicine can do. I, I did uh, TNF inhibitors and sepsis. Boy, the preclinical experience was those molecules should be phenomenal. We should be having an incredible impact on patients with sepsis. And it didn't turn out. And uh, by contrast, no one really thought it would have a benefit in rheumatoid arthritis. And lo and behold, it had a fantastic effect and it's become the standard of care for so many patients. And so it really gets to this idea that, um, in my mind, in, uh, part of the reason we do clinical trials is actually to understand the biology better. We are, we are, um, we are doing an intervention that actually informs us about what the underlying biology actually is, and we, we're often surprised. Um, that, I, I think to me that's the most fun part of what we do, is that we, we get the opportunity to learn that. There's another part of it which is actually more um, mundane, which is honestly, sometimes even if you have a benefit, you need to understand what the risks are as well. So simply giving someone a, a TNF inhibitor for, for rheumatoid arthritis, it works great but we had to also understand the safety of that medicine and understand that um, it could have an impact on infections, for example, 
those are all part of now the label. And so when those, when a doctor now gets that medicine and gives it to a patient, the doctor and the patient understand, at least based on our experience, what the benefits are, but also what the risks are. And I think you really need to understand that um, when you, by the time you get it out to patients. And I think we can only learn so much from preclinical experience. And so when I sit back in my lab, you know, we can understand pathways or disease in, in certain animal models or tissue culture settings to the best of our ability. But going into patients is really where the biology will, you know, come to light. And I think with your TNF example, you could even take that even further because we know that when TNF started working in rheumatoid arthritis, the TNF inhibitors, I was like, great, this can be used for all autoimmune diseases. And then it was put into multiple sclerosis to horrible detrimental effect. Right. And then it was taking that information and going back to some of the animal models and saying, oh, what we, we kind of, if we run a different model or we tweak them, now we realize that there's this biology that we can start exploring to come up with something that may work. That's so right. this iterative thing is very, very important to the clinical trial process. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that's that's sort of the, again, I think you, you mentioned reverse translation. I think that you know this idea in my mind is sort of every time we, we, we have to make sure that every time we do um, a trial, with the medicine, we learn as much as possible. Whether it's successful or not, we learn as much as possible for that reason to, to inform um, what's next and what else can, uh, we can do. Where are we today looking forward? We have big data, we've got the capacity for genetic testing, we have got the capacity for biomarkers and tracking responses or disease outcomes. How does this all tie together for a better future or a faster future for clinical trials? Yeah, in some regard, we have um, moved the bar so much in so many diseases uh, that you know we, we've made the work for ourselves harder going forward. And that, that's a that's a I guess that when you ask me that question, that's part of what how I think about it. Our jobs should get harder and harder every year because the baseline gets higher. And yeah, higher. because because every time somebody comes out with a new treatment for something, and a patient with cancer lives longer or a patient with asthma gets better, you know, it's good that our job gets harder. And that's kind of what we're after as a group, as, as scientists and clinicians and the industry and um, all of that. So I, I, I kind of look at it in that, with that lens sometimes when you, when you ask that question about the future. I sort of think in the future it's going to get harder. So what does that mean? I think it means we have to work harder to get to those solutions for people using now tools that not only didn't we have even five years ago, but also tools that we, we haven't really thought about yet, which is that reverse translation part. So um, I think that uh, we are starting now to be able to implement discoveries that came out you know, many years ago in terms of genomics, in terms of identifying patients, biomarkers, all these things into our trials. And while they may not have the expected outcome in the next two or three years, I think what we learn from those will feed back to informing for what we're gonna do from there. And, um, and our challenge here is the data challenge that you alluded to. I think that's one of our big challenges is what we're learning is that um, there aren't one or two different subtypes of the diseases, but there may be a thousand. And that's 
includes what's going on with that patient, that each patient has so many unique factors um, that influence their response to a medicine, ranging from the microbiome to their ethnic background to what, you know, all those different factors that come into play that, um, that right now we have somewhat blunt instruments and crude tools to try to understand that. And I think at a high level, we're starting to get there. But if you look forward, uh, I think our tools are gonna get refined and we're gonna learn more. And it's about bringing all this information together, the scientific information, as well as what we know, what we're learning about patients and marrying those two to, uh, to try to figure out how to treat the next set of diseases and, and uh, the next set of problems that we have. And so do you think we'll get to that place fairly soon of personalized medicine in, in the true sense that you as a patient get diagnosed for your subtype of disease and your predicted outcome to any given therapeutic? I think we're already there in many diseases, right? I think if you look in, in, in a number of diseases, you're seeing more and more of that happen. It's certainly not happened across the board. But we, we talked about breast cancer. You know, there's a great example of knowing what your breast cancer um, profile is like has a huge impact on what, how you get treated and how you do, right, what your, what your outcome is. I think, I think it's more, li more and more likely that mo that will happen more and more often. Um, and so I do think that there will be more and more personalization of medicine over time. Um, if you look at our personal cancer vaccine now as, as, a, as an approach, you're really now talking, you're getting down to the level if that technology can play forward, you're looking at taking a tumor from a patient, an individual patient, sequencing it, and then vaccinating a patient against their own individual tumor. Which may be very different from everyone else's. So that's it's right. excessively personalized. So it's truly personalized. And so I think they're, they're you know, that's a, that's a phenomenal experiment that we're going to run. I think we, we are at, in the middle of a, a real shift in how we take care of patients. And I think that's a really exciting shift in, in how we're going to see patients get taken care of um, for, you know, the next generation of medicines that are coming out. And, and I think that's, that's a really exciting thing to be involved in. It's, it's very exciting, and it's certainly what gets me to work every day, too. So, Medad, it's been a delight. Thank you. My pleasure, it's been really fun, thanks. And that's a wrap. It's the end of our first season. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed interviewing. It's been such a pleasure for me to engage with and discuss with colleagues around their particular science projects, their personal journey to get where they are, and to really think about where the whole field is moving into the future. Now, I have a question for all of you in the audience. What would you like to hear discussed during the next season? Are there burning topics on your mind, something that we've not covered or need to go back and delve into it a little bit more? We'd love to hear your ideas. So send us an email at podcast at gene.com. That's podcast at G-E-N-E dot com. In the meantime, keep telling your fellow science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe, plus rank us on iTunes. Now, for me, it's back to the lab. Woo! <laughs>